Such intimacy changes our lives. We see at once that awakening is not just for our small selves. Wherever we turn, each thing shines with its own light, which is our light. Human and non-human, even animate and non-animate are included in our circle. And so we are family with the kangaroos, rivers, stars, and other people without respect for wealth or color or any other divisions. And in the same way, each moment of life is real, standing up, sitting down, and wearing clothes have their dignity and their part in the web. We come down from the mountain vistas of the spirit to travel about in the valley among the other creatures. For the sake of what is greater than the world, we are led to immerse ourselves in the world. Intimacy. Well, you know, that, that's a really powerful, beautiful statement, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That last statement, for the sake of what is greater than the world, which would be things like, like intimacy, right? We are led to immerse ourselves in the world because we care about the world. I really like that. Okay. Intimacy restores a human scale to the immense insight of awakening. Something delicate and subtle is involved in this. Many movements of union and separation occur in the course of our inner journey. We progress as if in one of those 18th century dances, now together, now apart, while the violins continue. Each of us is a wave of the same salt sea and joined. Yet we come to it a tenderness for each wave, so particular and separate, so strong in its feeling for its own shape, its own offering to life. Our tenderness has no intentions toward life. It is an appreciation, both a personal feeling and a recognition of reality. Does that seem to you like no intentions, like no gaining? No idea of gaining anything? Is that how you guys read it? Yeah. No. Uh, gaining in what? Gaining in what respect? Gaining. Oh. that we're not doing it for a profit. Our tenderness, we just do it because we care about life. We don't want to get anything from it. I mean, but couldn't that technically be uh, gaining something by default? Yes, that, that happens when we, when we care about things, right? Right. We're not doing it for that intention, but something, you know, like you say, by default. I think that's a good way to say it. I kind of, it makes me feel uh, now together, now apart. You know, are we, we come with a tenderness for each wave. So it's like, there's no judgment there. It's just a life moving and we develop an appreciation for all of it. Um, that's kind of what I'm hearing. So it's kind of very similar, I think, to what you're saying. It's like the, the, there's no intention to control the waves, just appreciate them. Yeah, I think that's a better way to put it because it's, uh, it, it seems like, I guess, when you're controlling it, you're, you're, you're gaining something from it, or when you're trying to control it, you're gaining something from it. Whether it's, uh, you know, inadvertently or, or whatever. I like how Gail talked about the, you know, even the waves that aren't so friendly, you have a tenderness toward them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says many movements of union and separation occur in the course of our inner journey. So sometimes I'm feeling, you know, very separate in my 
you know, humanity not very joined. And other times I'm, you know, that veil is lifted and I feel more connected. Um, but I don't think there's any judgment in any of it. It's, you know, it's just this experiencing. And that's, that's hard to, uh, you know, we've kind of all grown up only wanting the unions and not the separations. Mm -hmm. Well, you think we grow up that way, but actually we push people away all the time <laughs> with our own little, uh, you know, thought bubbles about the way things should be. Yeah. It refers also to, I, I don't know, but I, I'm thinking of, you know, that there is not necessarily a series of, of whatever things we may encounter. There is not always po uh, continuously po positive and or right. continuously negative, mm -hmm. that there is a mixture and... And also that the, um, the positive and negative are um, not necessarily in the, the thing, but in our minds, that we see, we see it as positive and negative. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. the stock market goes down if, yeah, it's positive for somebody. As, we see that as negative, but that's our creation. All it does is go down and up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Trouty, are you next? I'm not sure. Am I? I think so. No. I think, you, I think you, you next, Kim. You are on. I didn't read. No. I didn't think so. Yeah. Compassion. Compassions for other is born of our own experience of suffering. It first appears at midnight when suffering has wrung the self-absorption out of us and broken down the boundaries that enclose us. Then it is, <coughs> it is a surprise, the invisible thing that joins us at last to human fate. We learn to love, to care for the anguish of others. Now at noon, the situation is not set desperate or shocking, nothing is forced. Hearing the news that we have, this, we, that we have the same last names as the, <coughs> as the blowing brass, the glowworms in the cave made by the roots of the upturned trees and the galaxies living and dying in their vast cycles, compassion rises like the evening breeze, a natural feature of our inner seasons. The selfish emotions give us pain, thicken us, constrict the breathing. But our feeling for others is weightless and old. We recognize the other, our original links to all life. Can you go back up to that, uh, to the first line real, real quick? I want to write it down. I like the line. Uh, this one? Yeah. I guess because, you know, if you go through something, you know how they say you wouldn't wish it on your uh, your own worst enemies? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it's something, something that's really bad. But where I think it's wrong is, is that um, often we hear about people who were treated poorly like as kids who then go ahead and treat others poorly so so that's kind of the opposite wouldn't it be Hold on. Can you the people do, don't learn um because they're suffering they don't necessarily learn compassion some learn just the opposite um i think it can be born though from that you know just because some people you know, maybe, um, you know, are too muddled or confused to understand that, you know, their suffering isn't just their suffering, other people feel the same. 
So, right. so you mean like it's not born yet? Exactly, because uh, you know when you when you've suffered, and, and just like Cody says, you know, and you run into somebody else, you know, who's maybe having the same experience that you had. You know what that's like, you know, and and um, I think it does open the door for compassion very often. You know, they say, um, I, you know, I've read this somewhere. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, some of the most uh, giving and kind people, let's say, in an impoverished area, um, well, it, you know, in other words, if you're having a hard time and you live in a poverty-stricken area, there's probably other people who are more willing to help you than maybe this, you know, wealthy, you know, politician over, you know, and some other thing. I mean, that's what I'm saying is I, I've often read, you know, that people that have the least are often the most generous in many cases, you know. Um, I, I think I've, you know, I've read stories about that. Um, there was a, there was a documentary where they had this guy traveling the planet with no money. <laughs> that was what his, his, um, challenge was and it was to see if he could actually you know survive and go from place to place on the kindness of strangers basically and darned if he did, wasn't able to do it and the places that he found the most help were the places you wouldn't expect not in the wealthy neighborhoods but in the you know the average everyday joe neighborhoods people would give him a place to sleep they would feed him they would try to, you know, help get him to the next spot, you know, um, you know, just like uh, the monks with their bowls going out and asking um, the villagers, you know, to fill their bowls, you know, <laughs> they don't have anything. So oh, I was in Mexico City and um, there was a woman who looked very poor sitting by a church with the baby and i felt so sorry for the baby because it, it was very small but then on an older face and i'm sure melen's seen kids like that right and uh, so i gave her money and then i followed her into the church and she took the money i'd given her and put it in the in the box for contributions Does that surprise you, Malin? That she would do that? Does it surprise you? Yes. Yes, it's not common. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll have to go back and try again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's me. Yes. Compassion carries a sense of objectivity, but its nature is to be highly particular. In this way, it carries our spiritual recognition into the soul's domain of love that has a body. We feel for this child with a running nose, whose black hair falls into her eyes when she somersaults. For this cliffside, where the snow gums bleed, red sap on their white trunks and bombats have burrowed dim palaces on the broken rock. And the more particular it becomes, the less remote, the more it moves into love. Love comes out of the emptiness. It can't be helped. Like us, it is absurd and endures through its own fragility. Gradually, love draws us into the world again. At this, at this stage of the journey, we value small efforts toward the good. Or to be more precise, we love the little as well as the large. No longer always certain which is which. Good deeds and kindness are simple and sustaining, like bread. It is good to love the near, sweet, and present things 
pleasing to the soul, the apple fresh from the tree, the children learning to read. From there, compassion ripples outwards to the hungry child, to the alien refugee, refugee fleeing war. The woman who was awakened in the curb when she saw how exactly the wall met the, met the floor, talked later about how she had been changed. I feel a responsibility toward the world now, which I didn't feel in any serious way before. As a child, I would take care of myself pretty much, and I had certain things I had to do. My parents told me I had to go to school, make tutus, etc. But that was about the extent of my responsibility. I wasn't conscious of what others needed. I think an enlightenment experience opens up the interconnectedness of the self with everything else. There seems to be no choice. Let me think of an example. <clears throat> well, if somebody has a problem and they want to talk about it, it's my responsibility to sit there and be a listener, a committed listener to that person. Otherwise, I could say, oh, that's your problem. Too bad. I'm more concerned about my own problem. I can ignore the suffering. I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, I can't ignore the fact that people are suffering any longer. I noticed they were suffering before, but now I feel I have some part in it and an obligation. doesn't feel separate right. from it. That seems, uh, I like that story. It's, she isn't sep is separate anymore, you know? That's, mm -hmm. This example is very ordinary, befitting her kindly feeling for common things. The movements of compassion can be big enough to save rainforests, but intimacy also appears in the small acts that open infinitely large doors. Modest acts of courage reverse evils before they grow great. Small generosities welcome children to the world. Those who recognize their connection with others serve quietly, like members of a secret order. Then the small acts and the large coalesce. In Denmark, even the king put on the yellow star to show solidarity with his persecuted Jewish citizens during the Second World War, a small act and a great one all at once. When a hospice worker told about the death of a patient dear to her, she began with the lighter, the air quality of the final night. The night she died, doves came around my house and sang, Perhaps this happens often, but I had never noticed it. I still dream of doves, white doves, and think of her dying. I don't usually admit this to people at the clinic, but when all is said and done, love is the only worthwhile force in the world. There's nothing else that really counts. <laughs> Doves belong to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and they are also messengers of the Holy Spirit, bringing the divine into the world. In their image, soul, and spirit meet. But the blessing of love also brings us close to the wound of love. For love makes us submit to the unheroic weakness of having a mortal body and opening us to each other, making us helpless and kind. Knowing, knowing the intimacy of awakening, we, up, we hold up our little light and step forward. Even a glimpse of enlightenment is a sharp brightness. We want to find out what's next how to stain our lives with that color, to be dyed all through. And so love with its urgency for particular, for the particular, lead us further along our road and into the world. We are immersed again. 
swirled about fog, sea mist, uncertainty. For love is where we shall end up. It is where all the stories end that end that end well. But first, there's another road to walk. Consolidate what we have discovered, still so new and frail. So these last couple of paragraphs are beginning with a hospice worker are um, landing with me because my mother died about 10, 10 days ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And that's one of the reasons I haven't been here. The summer has been, um, she's been de declining and we've had a lot of family coming out and she finally passed of Alzheimer's. Um, but I think this love is the only worthwhile force in the world. Um, I mean, that's, that's the truth. Love makes us submit to the unheroic weakness of having a mortal body and opening to each other. It's helpless and kind. So when my mother passed, there wasn't much left. Uh, she, her brain was probably shrunken to about one pound and most of her, she moved back into um, infancy. She, she was like a newborn. Everything had gone backwards for her. So the body appeared very, very weak. But um, I think the love that was felt in her final days on the day that she passed, well, that was huge. So. Um, the love that all of you felt toward her? Yes. And... Um, her, her acceptance of it, how can I say it? It was sort of like in the giving of it, I was getting it. You know, when I was tending to her, um, um, I no, was- you felt she was receiving it. I felt she was receiving it, yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just really, um, uh, you know, all the, uh, what do you call it? It was hard. It was hard. All these twenty years watching her die, you know, from Alzheimer's. I mean, well, deteriorate. I lost her a little at a time, <clears throat> but at the, but at the very end, the night that she died, um, I'd been with her all day. I'd left and then I came back uh, because they called me to hurry back, and I didn't quite make it there. But. Um, the people that attended her where she was living as she passed um, told me that at the last moment her eyes opened. They actually took a picture and she, for the first time in weeks, her eyes opened and she actually looked up at something and really saw something. They didn't know what it was, but it was a look of wonder. And um, I have the picture of, of her expression. So something was there, something was there. <laughs> In that moment, there was an awareness and that awareness was um, experiencing something. And uh, yeah, um, I read to her the Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, he has a beautiful poem, it's called, um, it, it, it's a chant you read to the dying. And um, in it, I, I, that day I'd read it to her over and over and it was about how uh, I'm not the body, I'm not caught in the body. Um, I was never born, I will never die. I'm boundless, that's part of it. Um, but I really felt she heard that all, I heard it because it was so calming. And um, so I don't think the love goes anywhere. And actually um, watching the body deteriorate and going through the death process really just highlights that for me. So, yeah, so I love it. This, this author is very poetic. Don't you think? Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. 
I don't know how we're going to read other people who aren't so poetic after this. Yeah, he really evokes, uh, you know, a certain uh, a certain sort of poetry. Because um, what he's talking about is really hard to, um, you know, to impart to people. So that's where poetry comes in. Love is where we shall end up. It is where all the stories end that end well. <laughs> My mother lost all of her stories. She had zero stories at the time of death. <laughs> they were, they had all disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Here we go. Who's reading now? Am I? Okay. It's on you, Kim. Well, oh. I don't know. I'm asking. I think it's I think it's Kim. <laughs> it seems always to be me when I ask. <coughs> Tumbling out of the light. Officially, even a needle cannot enter. Unofficially, you can drive a horse and cart through. Spiritual awakening brings the glory of the dawn. We are charged, brightened, elevated, and enlarged. But on returning to the everyday world, we find that much remains the same. The dishes need to be done. Children want to know all about the split photon experiments of which we ourselves continue to have a weak crest. <coughs> Phone messages remain unanswered. Investments must be supervised and toilet bowls scrubbed. At the same time, the basic wounds of human life remain. War, famine, and human misery appear at every turn. And if anything, <coughs> we are even more, and if anything, we are even more aware of the suffering they carry. Now, Trotty. Okay. After a great experience of opening into a new way of being and looking, our task is to embody what we have found. Awakening requires some degree of union between spirit and soul, but such experiences seem almost always to drift, to lean toward the side of spirit. Spiritual love is so full of the ideal that it must learn to embrace imperfection, to descend, to become embodied, heavy, and thick again. If there is a treasure to be found in the depth of the night, there is also a valley very near the mountains of awareness. We have to fall into the valley again, to be depressed, to suffer again, just to have life. The light of eternity fits itself into small physical moments that make up our lives. We have bodies, we are bodies. Hunger, thirst, longing, foolishness, work, failure, joy, honor, and disgrace. Through us, spirit is entangled in fragile matter, taking the shape and height and name. There's no other vehicle. Through the gate. In some schools of Zen, there is a ceremony called transmission in which a new teacher's understanding of the spiritual realm is recognized. The first time I saw such a ceremony, the new teacher was already in his 60s. The old teacher, the mentor said, now your practice is beginning. You know, there's that koan about jumping off the 100-foot pole, and I was surprised to learn that that's not like when you've made it, but that's like the beginning, too. 
like when you're able to jump off the hundred foot pole, when you're able to, to like let loose or risk everything or whatever it is. I, I, I was disappointed. <laughs> I, could, I could just take this easy step off the pole and I, it would, I'd be there. But that's I don't, I don't think there's any end. Is there? There's no end to this becoming that we're no, happening. <laughs> unfortunately, or fortunately. Yeah. I, what is that saying? It's something like always being, always becoming. <laughs> always being and what? Always. Always being uh -huh. and always becoming. Becoming. Yes. I didn't hear the becoming. Thank you. Yeah. I wrote it down. Nice. Okay. Who's reading now? Me? <laughs> it is beginning because the way is always new. The child comes to the breakfast table with fresh sleep in her eyes. The sun rises over a landscape and we have never sufficiently attended to, and the oranges laid open in quarters are the first quarters from the first orange tree, golden lamps from their green light, but there is also a Mormon day <coughs> sense of beginning. To understand is quick and exciting, but to embody is slow and penetrating. Even the deepest experience just brings us through the gate of a new realm. The meditation tradition has always emphasized that it is important not to cling to spiritual experience. Such grasping becomes its own problem, the brightness obscuring the view. There is an old Chinese expression for this. Gold dust is precious, but if it gets in the eyes, it can cause blindness. Here, a man tells about not holding on to spiritual gold. I walked across a lawn with a view of the Atlantic. The grass became so green and alive. I could notice the ants moving around and there was a dragonfly. Suddenly, I didn't have any doubt. I knew that we didn't, sorry, we hadn't lost anything, that the old teachers were still alive and that they could still teach me. Oh, it's still going on, sorry. I asked for a meeting with my teacher. He asked me a lot of what seemed like diagnostic questions. I was confident that I had entered his world and still am. Then I fell silent, lost in the wonder of it all. He laughed and said, don't worry, it will pass. <laughs> <clears throat> Some teachers believe that it is necessary to intervene with their students to wipe away by humor or other means any stain that their awakening may have left. But life will remind us of this all by itself. If the first task of the inner work is to pass through the gates of eternity, the second is to be of use, to bring, back, to bring something back to the world and its creatures. And this means to get involved once more in the mystery of incarnation. In heaven, where everything is already attained, there is no growth. Only the earth holds seeds and gravity pulls us down to the earth's dark riches. It may seem strange, but even after we know one of the triumphant achievements of consciousness, we should suffer a second descent. But it is true to the poetry of the way, to its inconsistency, caprice, and beauty. 
The second descent is part of the long, good work. It sometimes appears as an acute crisis during which our demons enter and out or return, and sometimes as a prolonged time of flatness and mundane difficulty in which our best plans are thwarted and our hopes unfulfilled. Our discoveries undergo ordeal by reality. Now we learn about the darkness that attaches to achievement and leadership and about the strangeness, the things that arrive when we are looking the other way. Pathologically, pathologically pure. I am going to God and not stopping to sniff the flowers on the way, said John of the Cross, impatient for the spiritual treasure. But who is to say that God's body is not in those roadside weeds? Certain kinds of purity disregard life and seem to call us toward a second descent. On earth, spring just comes. Rain, the fresh shoots, blooms in the Sonoran Desert, Sagaro, <coughs> Osotelo, Hedgehog Cactus, Staghorn Chala, Palo Verde, I'm saying these words terribly, prickly pear holding up its yellow cups. Woodpeckers go hopping among them. The little wren chases the big woodpecker away. Doves cuckoo in the dust and the coyote melts into the, into the mesquite without exerting herself. Then spring goes. Once we have established an awakening, we want to fill the day and night with its freshness, to live in its elation forever. But this is to ask too much. It leaves no room for living for the fading of the flowers <coughs> so that they may have seed for the losses that educate the soul. Wow. <clears throat> no questions. Many times on our journey, we are tempted to identify too much with the infinite to starve in crystal palace. Zen teachers call this condition the stink of Zen, recognizing that spiritual attainment creates its own problems. Beauty arises before us as in the Navajo horse songs while we move out toward it. If we try to make it fixed, it disappears. The high moment passes and we have to spend time with the dirt itself, the dry wash, the black road, considering that the pleasure of those pebbles might also be God's pleasure and the weeds, the garden where God may walk at ease in the evening. I, um, before I kind of forget how it impacted me is when we read a little bit ago, that some teachers feel the need to kind of, um, you know, bring the students back down from their transcendent experience and kind of, you know, have them, uh, you know, sweep the stones or use humor to kind of uh, play down their experience. And I love that he said that life itself will remind us of all of this. We really don't need anybody to burst our bubbles. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, there's nowhere that we can stay separate from this life movement. I mean, we can try, you know, but, um, you know, this stink of Zen, um, you know, it's going to create its own problems, like it says here. Um, oh, I don't know. I, I was just thinking that, uh, any glimpse I've ever had of reality um, is always followed up by life as it is. <laughs> always. Like an ice cream, you know, you get an ice cream cone, 
and it's so wonderful. And then it starts dripping all over your hand. <laughs> On your white shirt. That's why I buy, buy ice cream in a cup instead of the cone. So that's why you don't buy chocolate ice cream. <laughs> and right now, um, my wife and her sister are eating chocolate ice cream and peaches that a friend gave us from in St. Louis that are, we've had every meal, every dinner we've had. The, she gave us a whole bag of peaches. They're so wonderful. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> we can't fix anything. Yeah. The peaches are going to go eventually. <laughs> and then you'll have memories of peaches. Yeah, the ice cream's going to go. Okay. <laughs> is this where we are the great 18th century master yes yes and who's reading so me, me i believe okay uh, the great 18th century master Akuin Akuku, went to his teacher with his enlightenment experience nicely written down the teacher brushed the paper aside and invited Hakuin to explain to explain it to him directly. Hakuin said, there's nowhere to attach arms and legs to it. The teacher twisted Hakuin's nose saying, here's a place to attach arms and legs. While Hakuin was still in his exalted state, his teacher called him a demon watching over a corpse in a coffin. Eventually, Hakuin stopped holding on to the spiritual heights and told his teacher of his new understanding. The master neither approved nor denied what I said, but only laughed pleasantly. But from this time on, he stopped calling me a poor hole-dwelling devil. The symptom of being caught in the empty world is that we refuse to pass lightly into the stumblings of ordinary life. We swing between heaven and hell, forgetting that spirituality is not about the relative merits of a particular place, even heaven. Here is one woman's account of the problem. When I am in retreat, I see so clearly that I'm just in, in the light. Other people's opinions don't matter because I am at ease with everything. The only way I know I have identified too much with the light and somehow lost my humanity is when I crash and the depression sets in. Then I feel so deeply unloved and intrinsically warm, wrong. And I'm very reluctant to let anyone in to help me. Mm. Wow. She is describing a classic problem of the inner work in which identifying with the spirit, we lose our conversation with it. Other people's opinions matter very much to them. And from their point of view, her ascent may feel like a barrier or an abandonment of the human. This is why serious inner training is most rigorous in its lightest stages. If you try to go for forever beyond the inward experience of descent, we refuse our mistakes and our learning. At such a time, we have fallen out of harmony with spirit and are merely asserting its privilege. We might begin to find the darkness outside and to search for heretics. The clergy are poor at governing because they identify so strongly with the perfection of their vision that they leave no room for life. That's so true. They attempt to bring the rigors appropriate to the early stages of a private interior discipline into the public realm. In the private realm, cutting off all distractions and extra, extraneous interests, denying personal whims and fancies, turning away from everything a part of one, 
apart from one's own narrow path, lead to the deepening attention, the deepened attention. In public, they lead to the inquisition. And even in the private realm, in the long run, if we do not accommodate our little vices, they grow large and spill over to torment those close to us. Man, that's spot, that whole paragraph is spot on. Spiritual vices do not live openly in clerics and cults. Some of the worst tyrannies of our era can be recognized as idealistic perversions of the spirit. The Nazis wanted purity and clarity. No Jews, no gypsies, no homosexuals, no modern artists, no one crippled, no one different, and ultimately, no one alive. The Khmer Rouge of Cambodia, in a dreadful parody of Buddhist asceticism and of Rousseau's ideal of the natural human, starved a whole people and killed anyone who had an education, anyone who knew a foreigner or had a skill, even the doctors, anyone who was not unformed, naive, and illiterate. This crime is a vice of the spirit because it attempts terribly to subdue life to the idea to make, a, to make a union only with the perfect, the unshaped. One of the distinct features of Cambodia's particular terror was that tears were banned. Wow. The soul's tears that bless us and dissolve a little of the harshness of fate. A survivor told us how one day at a meal, she began to weep uncontrollably for her murdered husband. The other prisoners gathered silently around her <coughs> to shield her from the sight of the guards. Otherwise, she too would have been killed. Under such a regime of terror, differentiation is, almost, is not allowed, nor the soul's operations of separation and sorting that help into awareness. Aristotle, saner, more human and worldly, without any great spiritual interest, said you cannot build a city with one kind of person. You need different kind of people to make a city. Mm. I just want to say, let's just read one more paragraph. Okay. Like a totalitarian government, spirit that is too pure will eventually fall from its own excesses. If inflation is attachment to the magnificence of the spirit, the inevitable other pole is suffering, martyrdom, and sorrow. When we have lingered too long in the realm of transcendence, it turns into its opposite as if in obedience to an ancient law. The air goes out of the balloon and old torments arise once more. One of the tasks of the second descent is to see that while we may have learned something real, the journey continues and its explorations and stumblings continue too. Torments belong to us still. Out of time, yes, we are out of time. Oh yeah, so, we're out of time. So um, it is eight o'clock. So you want uh, how many yeah. minutes? Ten. 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 So I I will chime. Great. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Are we back? Gail smiling. And Cody. Cody smiling. <laughs> Trouty is laughing. And Kim is smiling. <laughs> Who would like to share?
Well, Kim will share. <laughs> so I don't know how much this relates to what we read, but I will share. <coughs> A clump of dirt held together with hay demolished our windshield. After it was replaced, we could barely see the glass. And then a bug squished against the glass and then a smaller mommy bug and then a smaller big brother bug and then a little sister bug. No longer a virgin, virgin windshield. I mourned the appearance of no windshield. I think it should be, I mourned the disappearance. No, I mourned the appearance. My wife mourned the demise of Papa Bug and his family. And, and so here's the, oh, I can't do it like this. I have to turn off blur. Oops. Here we go. So here's what it looked like. The four bugs on the windshield. <laughs> and I said, oh, that windshield was so perfect. And she said, well, what about the bugs? What about the bugs? <laughs> well, that's exactly what we were talking about, Kim. <laughs> you know, just yeah, like you when you get a beautiful new car and you first time you get it scratched. It's just <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> yeah, Truly, you gotta take it was so clean, the new windshield, that we it looked like air. You, you couldn't see any glass in the, in the way the light was. And then, pop, you know, poof, poof, poof. <laughs> you, you have to take the good no with the more bad. bugs. The whole trip, no more bugs. <laughs> Just before. <laughs> well, we haven't made it back yet. We drive back tomorrow, so we'll see. Where are you? In Illinois, in Mon uh, Monticello, Illinois, visiting my wife's um, father, who's 103 and a half. And we moved him from one room to another, one apartment to another. And the apartments are absolutely identical. So we knew where everything went. <laughs> and then, uh, so we did that. And then um, I also visited a friend in St. Louis who just had his foot amputated. Hmm. And it's not strange to be with someone with a foot amputated. I don't know if I've known someone, Cody probably does, who had a, some kind of limb amputated. Well, I did actually, as I, my friend's father had both of his feet. Yeah. But that seemed more apparent. But I forgot, you know, talking to my friend, I forgot immediately. That he that he didn't have a foot. Huh. Anyway, you're going to get more bugs on the way back, Kim. Hate to tell you. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> Especially at night. We're not going to drive at night then. Yeah, we don't drive at night. You know, I was um, I was just uh, struck by. Um, is talking about uh, the Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge regime, and you know these other Nazis, and you know the way he puts it, it's like this sort of ideal has been somehow turned to a perversion. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of yes. I mean that really, you know, that really struck me. Um, and Aristotle really had it right, didn't it? That a city needs different people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah. just to see just as soon as we think it should all be just one thing, you know, I don't know, the transcendent, you know, boundlessness, you know, no bugs on the windshield, you know. Um. <laughs> and it's, it's, it, and it's, it's funny you brought that up because you would think that they want, you know, perfection, but, you know, it's so, it's so strict. And, so again, it's kind of like uh, it starts off good and then it ends up like horribly, you know. And uh, so this is, you know, the subject that we were on tonight basically talked about uh, both sides of uh, the good and the bad. 
And so it, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Uh, but I, I, I get I get where he was he was coming from, the writer. Mm-hmm. And he uh you know, he put a lot of good um analogies in there and symbols and whatnot. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, human beings, I mean, honestly, we kind of long for some sort of a perfect way of being, you know, and I think it was just sort of amplified out in the collective, you know, mm-hmm. on these other regimes and everything, you know, uh, where they, um, but it, it starts to become the problem, not the solution, you know, or worse than a problem. Mm-hmm. Because it, um, what do you call it? It, uh, it, it's like you said, it's so strict. It separates out all this diversity, all this life, all this, everything, you know, it's kind of crazy. Sometimes we think about a perfect Zen center and would it have like these, these model students who would do exactly the same thing. (laughs) And I love the way Peg really honors the, and Flint too, the difference between people. You know, that people will practice in many different ways. Cody, what did you say? (laughs) I would think uh, everybody doing the same thing the same exact way would make it less than perfect. I think it would be the opposite for me because how would you learn if everybody have the same ideas? Hmm. I had a friend, she's still a friend, but in college she said, if two people say the same thing, there's only need for one of them. <laughs> I thought she would say, it does not, well, or somebody else would say, it does not mean that they are saying really the same thing. Oh. Yeah, all this, all this uniqueness, um, it's, Pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, everything yes, the, is everything is the one thing expressing uniquely. Um, I mean, at least that's kind of one way I, I, I understand it, you know? Kind of interesting. I think this was this was a good section. Yeah, it was it was great. I was so glad um, uh, we met tonight. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all. Yes, thank you. It's good to be back. I'm sorry, Gail. I'm sorry. Yes, Gail. Well, you know, it was time. It was her, it was, do you know, um, in Ecclesiastics, you know that, uh, I don't know, uh, in the Bible, they have that a time for birth and a time for death, a time, you know, and it really was her time. And um, I read something interesting. There's this um, geriatric doctor who's written a book about Alzheimer's. It's called Untangling Alzheimer's, wonderful book about Alzheimer's. But in it, he says, it's very interesting that there really is a season when people die, that after the age of about 40 or 50, when people pass, transition they happen to usually do it around the season of their birth within about a three-month spot um like usually about a month before their birth date up to two months after this these are people dying of disease and you know different sorts of things as we age and my mother died one week after her 95th birthday Um, a friend of mine her mother died the day after her birthday Wow. But I, I, I thought, wow, that just gives new meaning to the, you know, a time to be born and a time to die. I mean, really, it seems it's literal. <laughs> there is a song, isn't there? Yeah, it's Simon it, it, and Garfunkel. It came, yeah, it came from the, yeah. From it came that. from Ecclesiastics. They set it to music, yeah. You know, a time to reap, a time to sow, a time to, 
you know, have joy, a time for grief, you know, and it just goes through the entire world of opposites. And um, there is a season for all of that. Um, that's kind of what he's saying. Okay, well, everyone have a good week. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Too. Do you, Thank you. Are you guys up for Labor Day? Yes. Oh, what's, good. Good. What's happening? Labor well, Day. The, All next right. week is Labor Day. Next, oh, next week is. I've lost I'm, track of time. Yeah, next Monday is Labor Day, but I'm I'm up for it. Me Try too. Up for it. Malen doesn't have Labor Day, so she's up for it. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll probably be up for it too. Okay. My um, my husband is uh, in California right now, so I've kind of got the house to myself, and it's kind of nice. Okay, great. <laughs> and Cody, do you have things on Labor Day? I have no plans. Oh, good, great. Okay. So, see you. Then. Good night, everybody. Bye. 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 See you. Bye. Bye. -bye.